draft season requires a special bonus edition of Four Four's most accurate podcast. And who else is better to do that with than none other than ESPN's Field Yates, my good friend in life. Normally, Field, I would actually ask how Cisco, your dog, is doing. Yeah. But more importantly, you have another child around the house now. I do. Yeah. First of all, thanks for having me on. And I get to brag about you here for a second, in a second. Um, but we do, we, we welcomed a baby girl. Um, her name is Kinley Yates. And I was going to say how old she is, but then I realized that at this stage, so tomorrow from when we're having this conversation, she will be 11 weeks old. I haven't quite figured out at what point you start classifying your infant by weeks, by months, by days, so if people are like, dude, your baby's almost three months, like you could just say three months old, that would also work. Um, my bad. I apologize for not knowing the proper terminology. Right now I'm going with almost 11 weeks old and uh, she's great. It's such an amazing, cool experience. What has been the biggest change up in your schedule? Because you are a man who works around the clock, but now you have more important matters. <laughs> um, you know, what I would say is that the baby was born, she was born January 21st. So we were in the, you know, for, and I know you're the same way. It's like really the busiest time of the year for me is August 1st, call it August 1st until the end of the fantasy, end of the regular season, which is the end of the fantasy season. Uh, things don't nosedive, but they, you know, they, they certainly slow down during the playoffs and during the NFL playoffs, I should say not the fantasy playoffs. And then during the, you know, the pre-combine period and then eventually free agency, things get crazy again. So she was born in late January and certainly things were, you know, exciting and, and, and there was a lot of NFL stuff happening through the Super Bowl. We had a little bit of a dip, though, before free agency. But then once free agency hit, the biggest thing that changed is that like back in, I mean, as recently as last year, like free agency was just like burn the candle at both ends. And you're just up at all hours waiting for the next Schefter story um, this year. Like, I'll be honest, with you, like, there were a couple of days where like you just get to like 10 o'clock at night and you're like i know someone else is going to sign tonight but you just can't do it like the i think the parenting uh you know fatigue is probably real and, and i'm sure it gets better over time but that's i'd say between that and you know i used to have the mornings i'm a morning person by by nature and i used to have like ample time in the morning like i'd get up the dog takes us go out and walk i'm a big coffee person like i'd have a cup of coffee or two or three that were completely under, uninterrupted now in the morning like i'm up and there's baby with me and i'm juggling a baby and a bottle and a coffee cup at the same time. So it's great. It's been incredibly, incredibly gratifying. Um, and I know that, you know, my, my wife and I would love to have multiple children that it's going to just become more complicated. So I should savor now how easy it is with just one, because before you know, it, we might have a, you know, a pack of two or three running around and I'll probably be delirious, but it'll be totally worth it as well. I also think, completely by accident, it'll make you a even better father moving forward for the next children because you just had a war of attrition and changing diapers through the most chaotic NFL offseason ever, right? Yeah, like you yeah. took on all of that with your work, plus in helping out with a child in that time. Yeah, I, You know what? When you put it that way, that gives me confidence. It really does, but it's been awesome. And uh, I really appreciate you asking. And I, I have to make sure that I say, this is the first time that you and I have podcasted together since you made your move to 444 and you know this fantasy community is interesting because i do think there's some there's, there is competition to it in some ways right like i do think there are people who uh, hold their own um analysis or accuracy or 
insights up against others and they measure themselves against others. And I think that's, that's, that's good and it's totally fine in some ways, but I've also loved being a part of the fantasy community because just because I might have my opinions or takes, I also love learning from somebody like yourself and you've been busting your hump for years and you've done an amazing job and it's great to see you not only be rewarded with, uh, you know, a new platform, but a place that I know has already been a great fit and will be for a long time going forward. And my hope is that this is the first time that we podcast together in your new digs and uh, perhaps we get to do it much more frequently going forward. You're far too kind. And I've always considered it a good quality to have to be bad with compliments uh, you don't oh, want yeah. the person that's just like, oh yeah, shower me with more. And so in that case, you know, I genuinely appreciate you, but I'm also going to move on also okay. because I'm very respectful of your time with everything going on. And I also have my mock draft at four for four, my first one dropping next Wednesday morning oh, and, yes. and piecing it together. I realized I came across five huge questions that I have. And that's why you're here to basically help me out and make me more of an accurate mock drafter. And with that, I want to start with the Lions at number two because they're all over the place right now. And we know they can address whichever position they need most, not only at number two, but if they gloss over it there, they can wait, even if it's at quarterback to number 32. And so what are you hearing in regards to where they're leaning with that first pick, the number two pick right now? I'd be very surprised if it was a quarterback. And I've heard people make the case from Malik Willis because a lot of people believe he has the highest upside amongst the quarterbacks in this class. I would just say this, and I know that every time you make comparisons in the pre-draft process, like things can get a little bit obscured. But people have said, basically every draft expert that I've spoken with that I've asked this question to has agreed that if Malik Willis or Kenny Pickett is the top quarterback in this year's class, They're also, at best, the sixth quarterback in last year's class. The fifth quarterback off the board last year was Mac Jones, and I think it took us, you know, whatever, a a few games to realize that if he is the fifth best in in last year's class, I mean, he's a pretty darn good fifth, right? I mean, he's obviously a very talented player. But when Mac Jones was being linked to the 49ers last year, the football, I mean, football Twitter, not fantasy, not real, just football Twitter in general was mind blown by the idea, the preposterous notion that Mac Jones could possibly be the third overall pick. How could you ever do something like that? And I, I kind of feel like, and I, I, this is probably another topic for their podcast. Like I, I believe the 49ers had their, their pick in mind of being Mac Jones. And I think that like the reaction to the, uh, the hypotheticals and the guessing, the yeah. I think the conjecture maybe led them uh, to, to reconsider some things. And obviously Trey Lance is now their pick and we'll see. Trey could be unbelievable for all we know. But anyways, I digress. So the point is that like, if the idea of Mac Jones going third last year and he was considered a better prospect than Malik Willis or Kenny Pickett this year was preposterous, then I think we need to sort of temper expectations. I do believe that Mac uh, Malik Willis will be a first round pick. I just think that there's a chance it's much closer to 12 than two and maybe even 22 than two. So the Lions, I think, are in this pretty good spot where um, I think best case scenario for them, I, I know best case scenario for them, is if Iki Aquanu or Evan Neal goes first overall to the Jacksonville Jaguars, which I believe remains in play right now. Um, and then they have their pick of Aiden Hutchinson, Trayvon Walker, Kayvon Thibodeau, you name it. I, I think those players, especially Walker and, and, and uh, I think Aiden Hutchinson are probably the two most likely players to be the two top defensive players off the board. Um, I know Thibodeau is really talented as well, but I would just probably, uh, 
estimate that Trayvon Walker and Aiden Hutchinson are the two most likely uh, defensive players off the board first. So um, that's where I think, honestly, like if I were Detroit, I would probably make it simple is that if one of them goes first, take the other kind of, I mean, things sort of fell last year into their lap when Panay Sewell got past the Dolphins at pick six when they went with Jalen Waddell instead for the Lions. And like, you saw the reaction, Brad Holmes, Dan Campbell, like just turn the card in. I sort of wonder if, if Aiden Hutchinson or Trayvon Walker from Georgia goes first, like just hand the card in. Cause I don't think there's going to be a bunch of trade up opportunities because there really isn't a quarterback this year. that is anything close to those guys that we saw last year. You also threw a bonus for the number one pick in there that I completely agree with. Everyone continues citing the fact that the fit is Aiden Hutchinson, but also like people don't step back and realize I'm not sure even Trent Baalke knows what the fit is. And so I also believe Ikem and Neil are absolutely prospects they could take there. I'm torn, conflicted on the number one pick, and I have not gotten to this point in my career by being a sheep and just agreeing with everyone. Uh, but right now I do lean like 55-45 Aiden, but absolutely think it's up in the air just like yourself. The Jets, yeah, though. I, I actually lean – I do – like if you put me like on the spot right now, I think it's Trayvon Walker from Georgia. Uh, I don't – Interesting. Don't, don't, I'll do, yeah, I, I do believe it's him um, Right as of right now with three weeks to go before the draft. That would be my pick. Um, with an offensive tackle two and then eight Hutchinson three. And which means that it's definitely going to be Hutchinson now that I say that out loud, but I do believe, and I know that Trayvon Walker is not nearly the, the prospect in terms of hype as some of the other guys, but he is a freak and had an unbelievable combine. And the sack production is the big hangup during the pre-draft process. Um, but I've been around too many times to see guys whose numbers did not shine in college that became great players in the NFL. This is totally Apples to oranges in a lot of ways, but the last Georgia defensive lineman who sacked production was not good in college, who got drafted higher than some thought he would, was Richard Seymour, who was just inducted to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He had 1.5 sacks his senior year at Georgia, and people thought the Patriots were absolutely insane for using the sixth overall pick on him ahead of wide receivers David Terrell and Corin Robinson. I'm not saying that Trayvon Walker is destined for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I just use the example that like sack production is not always the best way to measure a player's ability to rush the passer. I also get to number four with the Jets, who also pick at number 10, and we expect them to take a wide receiver. My question, though, is do you believe there's a receiver they love so much they would take it four, or do we think they're going to shake things up and just wait until number 10 for that pick and pick someone else at four? Yeah, my estimation would be that the cornerback makes more sense at pick four. And I think you have to, the draft is always uncertain. But two things that I've learned is that like you have to deal uncertainties for better or worse. Sometimes it's for better, right? Like sometimes you lock in on a player and you take him. And again, it might be earlier than others believe he, may, he merits going. But if you miss that player at that pick, you're not going to get him at all. And next thing you know, you're stuck. Um and, and if you miss out on a player that you really like, like that's that's not valuable. Like if, if especially if you think the player is going to be a difference maker for you. Now the other side of that is we've seen as an example, and not to you know not to frustrate Giants fans, but like the Giants believed that they had to take Daniel Jones sixth, or else they wouldn't be able to find a trade down partner, uh, or they would risk the possibility of not drafting him at all. And that's an ill fated decision, at least so far. But you know, like I believe that if you have a guy you love, you have to take him. So if I'm the Jets, I don't know that Sauce Gardner is there at pick 10. Do I know, know that Garrett Wilson is there at pick 10? I don't know that. But if I had to, if I had to 
lose out on one of those guys. I think the gap between Chris Olave, as an example, and Garrett Wilson is narrower than the gap right now between Sauce Gardner and Derek Stingley Jr., who's incredible, by the way. But there are some questions that have to be answered. Like, he's an amazing, amazing talent. It's just a different projection when the guy basically hasn't been on the field for two years. And I know that it's not all his doing, and COVID was a really unique year, and last year LSU was down, and he sort of took a big-picture approach to that Liz Frank injury. Uh, and he did run, you know, his 40 a couple days ago, and uh, that's all solid and good. But I think Sauce Gardner has a chance to be like a particularly special player at a, at a position that is a still a need for the Jets, even after a solid free agency roundup, which included DJ Reed. Given that we know, we assume James Bradbury will be gone in a couple of weeks, probably even before the draft. I think that's what helps your point the most in that Gardner will not be there if Bradbury's not there because this new regime now has to also build a new secondary for the great Wink Martindale. I love that point in so many ways. And again, sometimes I use examples that fans will be like, that team is dumb. But just remember, and I, I know this was like as bad as it gets, but like the Jaguars, once Trent Baalke became the GM and Urban Meyer became the head coach, they traded CJ Henderson a year after drafting him ninth overall, right? Like you have no loyalty. If you're Joe Shane and you're Brian Dayball, First of all, like they have had their hands basically tied behind their back because of the cap situation they inherited. But I would not be reading into basically any – there's no sponsorship of the players that are already there, right? Like other than guys they signed in free agency, I don't have any sense of how loyal or devoted they are to anybody on the roster. And if I'm the Giants, like I know the NFC is down, but I don't think I'm winning the division this year. I'm not sure it's happening next year. If you think Sauce Gardner is the best player in the draft and you think there's a chance that James Bradbury is gone and you're cutting a Dory Jackson after this year because his cap number is now 19 plus million dollars next year, then take him. And if you think, by the way, and I know it's going to sound crazy, but like if you think you're cutting Sterling Shepard after this year and Darius Slayton's going to be a free agent after this year, and you think you're cutting Kenny Galladay after this year and you want to pair Kadarius Tony with Garrett Wilson, like that's okay. I know it sounds crazy when you have major investments in at least three wide receivers. But this is an entirely different regime. So a long-winded way of saying I agree with your point wholeheartedly and that you have to be mindful of teams uh, behind you, even if our outside perception is that the need isn't as great as it might be on paper. Speaking of the NFC, another reason that you've been struggling to help your child sleep is because the Eagles also made a splash and pushing one of their three first-rounders this year back into 2023 when they, quick summary, shipped the number 16 and 19 picks to New Orleans in exchange for essentially the number 18 and a first-rounder next year, trying to lobby themselves into a good position next year. We will get to the Eagles in one second, but this is important for the Saints because some believe they made this move to yet make another move on draft day. What have you heard regarding what is happening in their front office right now? Yeah, so this is the second time Philly's been involved in a transaction that could end up working like this. Philly was on the other side of it before. Back in 2016, the Eagles moved up from, I believe, 12 to 7 initially. They had 12, and they moved up to 7, uh, where that was Miami. And they swapped pick 12, and Byron Maxwell, the cornerback, who had a, a very strong tenure in Seattle and then a less strong tenure after he signed a big deal with Philadelphia was traded to Miami, but Philly gets from 12 to seven. Then they get from seven to two, which is the deal that they execute to trade up for Carson Wentz. 
Now, again, I know that wasn't necessarily a decision that Philly, I mean, we, you know, you could debate how much or how strongly they feel about the decision a few years later. But the process reminds me of what New Orleans is doing, because I've heard like here's some theories that I'm just flat out not buying that they're trying to get in front of the Chargers. Uh, the Chargers have three weeks to do whatever they want now, right? Like, if anything, you're better served to wait if you're trying to get ahead of a team two picks in front of you until you're in the draft and you prevent them from having a prolonged window. Like, if the Chargers want to go find someone to trade up with, they can do that all month right now. So I'm not buying that theory. I've heard the theory that they feel like they're a contender this year and that they want to add two impact players as opposed to one. I give that some credence, but my my operating belief has been that New Orleans feels better equipped now to move up. This is a team that is always going to have targets. You remember last year, they uh, were intending to move up into the top 10, and the two targets they were most popularly linked to were a cornerback, J.C. Horn or Patrick Sertain II, or a quarterback, Mac Jones being their target. So that's how they operate in New Orleans. They find something they want, they go get it, and they do whatever it takes. So I would not be surprised if one more time, the night of the draft or before the draft, we hear New Orleans packaging picks to move up, whether it's at the top 10 or however far they need to go to get the guy that they want. Do you think the Eagles have a particular target that they were not worried about the Saints, for instance, jumping ahead of them to grab? Or was this strictly a move for based on draft value? Yeah, this is, this is a value play to me for Philly. Uh, and I, you know, having been in these rooms before, I remember, and I'm getting long here on some of these answers, but uh, I know my, my first draft with the Chiefs when I was working in scouting, we had the fifth overall pick in the draft. I had no clue it was going to happen. This was 2010. This was the year that Sam Bradford went number one. And Dominican Sue and Gerald McCoy were two and three. And I think there was, a, we, we felt pretty strongly that like, Dominican Sue was not going to be there. Uh, Sam Bradford was going to be off the board. Beyond that, I wasn't quite sure who was going to go in front of us. Uh, it ended up being that Eric Berry, who was the player that we, we felt strongly about going into the draft, was, was there and it was an easy pick and he had a great, great career even if cut short by injury. Um, but like, I remember going through mock drafts and be like, I have no idea what's going to happen. And this is pick five, like a pick 18 or 17 or 19. Like it's, there's so many different things that can happen. So I felt like this was a strict value play by Philly who I think, you know, front office, that, that's part of Howie Roseman. He's always thought that way. Um, I think that the trade was fascinating. Like basically it's like Philly can afford to be patient. And I think if you look at any draft value chart, Philly probably quote unquote won the trade in terms of draft value. Now you got to win the trade by making the right picks off of the, obviously with these players, but you know, I try not to come down too hard with an anvil on, on GMs for their draft pick. I know that's not fair. Like it's one thing if you consistently miss, but like, I love when people will be like, yeah, this guy, this guy was drafted for, you know, the saints used the third pick or the, the third round pick in 2016 on this guy. And, you know, three picks later, uh, you know, the, the Cowboys got uh, Byron Jones, who went on to become the highest paid cornerback in the NFL. It's like, yeah, you know what? Like, every team has done that, right? Like, it happens all the time. Um, every team passed on DK Metcalf. Every team passed on A.J. Brown. Every team passed on Debo Samuel. Like, that's just how the draft works. Um, but so for Philly, though, like, I, I am a believer, and I know, you know, a lot of people in our world feel this way as well, is that, like, the draft is ultimately – a dice roll in a lot of ways. And I'd rather have more opportunities to throw and high leverage darts too. Like I consider something within the first three rounds, pretty high leverage dart. Like I'm not saying that you should just accumulate all the seventh round picks in the draft, 
but Philly picked up that first next year and the 2020 sec 2024 second as well. Like those are two prime opportunities for Philly to expand that roster. Another front office that everyone, not just you, is a believer in is of course the Patriots, who I would have pinned for a wide receiver. They were rumored also to target in particular Jameson Williams before they dealt for Devontae Parker, who no longer had a spot on Miami's roster after all of their big free agent signings and dabbles with Tyreek Hill. What is your read on that situation now? By the way, like I, the, the Parker trade was one of those where like people, you know, it's, it's the world we live in. You have to have like a strong take on it. Sort of looked at it and I was like, that's just kind of like a reasonable value pit, a trade, right? Like Miami gets uh, the cap relief and they get a pick next year when they're basically punting on this draft, right? Like they have four picks right now. If you use the Rich Hill draft chart, they have easily the least amount of draft capital this year. Parker's not like he's not Tyreek Hill, right? But in a league where all of a sudden top paid wide receivers are making between 28 and $30 million a year, like 5 million bucks a year for Devontae Parker is like, yeah, that's fine. Right. Like that's, that's a, just and not a- even top paid, like even a Christian Kirk to make 18 million annually. Right, 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 then totally. you look down and you, you see the Amari Cooper and Devontae Parker deals. You're like, okay, like this is actually pretty good. This is valuable. Yeah. Like it's, it's not, again, I'm not saying this like changes the Patriots outlook dramatic. I don't think they go from whatever they were like the AFC favorites, but I'm like, that's just like reasonable football business by both sides. Um, but I still think wide receiver could be in play for them at pick 21. Just, and I always again, take the big step back here is as of right now, if I have the numbers correct on each of these players, uh, the top four wide receivers, Parker's in contract for two years, Kendrick Bourne's in contract for two more years. And then both Nelson Aguilar and Jacoby Myers are in the final year of their deal right now. Myers is a restricted free agent, so they could extend him and they could extend Nelson. They could extend any of those guys. But um, I do think like a long-term need for them remains wide receiver. I think cornerback's kind of the obvious one as well. So I would think that those two positions make the most sense to me. And they probably align pretty well with the board, right? Because at 21, we'll see where Jamison Williams goes or a Traylon Burks goes or a Jahan Dotson goes. But I would think one of those guys, if not a Chris Olave, is available as well. Uh, by the way, I, and I know this is, you know, these are one of those things that can get you, it could look terrible a few years from now. But I actually, Chris Olave is actually my favorite receiver in this draft. I actually have him as the highest rated wide receiver from Ohio State, which just – my own opinion, but um, not that's not a Garrett Wilson. Um, that's not a Garrett Wilson indictment. I just happen to think Olave is a really special player. Um, so that would be the wide receiver value, and then cornerback value. Like I think we believe Sauce Gardner will be gone. I don't know on Derek Stingley, but like he'd be an immense value pick twenty one. Like there are some other players, Trent McDuffie from Washington, is just like a frisky, like tough, physical corner who. Washington has like quietly produced a good number of defensive backs recently, whether it's Byron Murphy's been better for Arizona. Bud Baker's been good, obviously. Like there've been a number of, of cornerbacks slash safeties from Washington. I wouldn't be surprised if Trent McDuffie is the next good one from there. So those two feel like my estimation, the uh, most obvious targets at pick number 21. And then because of the Patriots, and I know this is not something that appeases fans always like they take the big picture view too, right? Like, we may not think of like, you know, like they may have a, like as an example, right? Like they have two good, good tackles, Trent Brown and, and uh, Isaiah Wynn. Like those are good players. Wynn, I believe in the final year of his deal. Like they may say, you know something like we have a left tackle now, but we're one, um, you know, negotiation away from not having a left tackle next year. So perhaps offensive tackle makes sense. Um, but I think wide receiver cornerback seem to make the most sense to me. Linebacker would also be in the mix there as well. That's why I lean best player available for New England, but also 
to your point and thinking about skill players and you mentioned the contracts, it wasn't just Nelson Aguilar. Remember last year when they went on that spending spree in free agency, they, they oddly structured every deal to end essentially two or three years out Hunter Henry, Johnu Smith, all these players included. So for a skill player to develop this year and then bolster into a starting spot next year, that does make a lot of sense despite the Parker trade. Yeah. And the Patriots have, you know, in the league, there's this big trend of kicking money down, kicking the can with money, right? Philly does it. They've always done it, but we've seen a bunch of teams do it. Like they've, they've just pushed a ton of money into the future. The Packers are a team that used to never do it. And now they're doing it because of the Aaron Rodgers thing and the Patriots and the chiefs are two teams that I think of often that have resisted that. Like if the chiefs wanted to create a ton of cap space, they could have done it with a Patrick Mahomes 28 or $32 million uh, roster bonus. They kept on the book for this year. Like his number could have been like 25 million less. And I know that like people love cap space and I fixate on it as, as well myself, but some of these teams are doing like create cap space later when you need to. And the reason why I mentioned this in, the, in relation to the conversation is that like one of the perils of pushing money forward is that some of the guys that we're talking about, like if they don't continue to pay, like if Johnny Smith does not have a breakthrough year next year, which I think there's, a chance that he, he, I mean, I think he looks better. He can't look worse. Right. Um, I think he can be better. Um, like, if, but if he's, if he's not and you, you compromise and you move money around his contract, well, that becomes a difficult one to move off of next off season. Uh, the Patriots are, are, are always going to, I think, you know, them and the chiefs remind me that like, they're always going to try to stay true to the principles there. And that includes like, if you don't have to push money forward, that's okay. Like it's okay to have enough cap space to get by with what you need um, and create cap space if something comes up. And in the meantime, to sort of, if you only got five million in space or one million in space, like so be it. You mentioned the Packers, and they have two opportunities at number twenty-two and number twenty-eight to replace Devontae Adams and Marquez Valdez Scantling. Should we expect a double dip at that position to appease the fantasy community and their fan base, or are you expecting more heartbreak, which has actually been more common in recent years? It makes so much sense that I'm convinced it won't happen. Right. It just yeah. seems like so yeah. obvious. I agree. But, yeah. But so like this team has forever drafted for value. Packers fans are sitting here thinking to themselves, is that a Jordan love pot shot? And it's not, it's just a truth, right? I mean, they drafted for value there. Um, they have to draft for need right now, not just because of the fact that they don't have wide receivers. I mean, they do have wide receivers on their roster, but they've got, you know, you've got sort of duplicable parts in Randall Cobb and Amari Rogers. Alan Lazard is solid, right? But like, is Alan Lazard or Jawan Winfrey plus one of those two guys in the slot enough to keep your offense anywhere near where it was? I think the answer is no. And then a lot of those guys, Cobb plus Lazard, uh, are both in contract years. Cobb, also a veteran player, Lazard, a younger player. He's a, he's a restricted free agent. But back to that conversation we were just having in England, like, you got to have a bigger picture view as well. So my belief is that they are a team that needs to draft for need. And this is a good year for it. I do think there are players in the first round at wide receiver. that are going to be available. You named a couple of them. Like those are the kind of players that if I'm green Bay, I'm taking them right now. Field. I genuinely appreciate you taking the time to jump on. Tell everyone where they can find your stuff. You've started back up with Barry, the fantasy podcast, That's as right. well as a, the TV show should return soon, correct? Yeah, we've got all kinds of stuff hopefully lined up in the hopper. But in the meantime, if you want to listen to fantasy stuff, fantasy focused podcast, uh, I do the first draft show, which is our uh, Mel Kuyper and Todd McShay, Todd, 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 uh, draft extraordinaire. 
Um, I love doing that show. It's uh, it's available. You can watch it live uh, Mondays at 2 p.m. on ESPN's YouTube and Twitter and stuff like that. But you can also listen to it in a podcast, wherever you get your podcast. And then I always tell people, if you feel inclined, I'm on Twitter at Field Yates, and I try to push out useful content and sometimes less useful content. And remember, your ratings and reviews are important in this new era of the Most Accurate Podcast as we continue on with two episodes every week throughout the offseason. Thanks again for joining, Field. We do really appreciate it. And to everyone else, we will see you again Monday evening.